Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Mark Costers about the history of who is and the registry directory access protocol. We're going to let you stew on that one for a while. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we melt with the finest minds in networking. Well, good evening, Mark. I see you are still at the office. Yes. Yes. Dedicated worker. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark. Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, one of the things I I started out on the internet way back in the 80s. Um, But one of the things that was kind of interesting is I went to grad school. I went to George Mason University for grad school. And uh, one of the things I took there was an advanced networking class. And in that networking class, they talked about the Network Information Center, the DOD net, NIC. And I thought, oh, hey, that's a pretty cool place. And, <laughs> and I was like, hey, I, I should work there. And, <laughs> and sure enough, uh, this company called Network Solutions uh, was hiring uh, people. And I uh, took a job at Network Solutions and actually was part of the DOD NIC. And uh, one of my first tasks was to reverse engineer who is so that uh, when the uh, Network Solutions took over the DOD NIC from SRI International uh, back in 1991, I was the guy that wrote the software to make that happen from Network Solutions. Wow. So, so this is, is this a lesson in chasing a dream and then wishing you hadn't caught it? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. But it, Actually, it was it was really fun because um, after the first week, you know, you start out and you have a forty hour work week, and it, the next week it immediately went to eighty hours and never went less than that uh, <laughs> for for a really really long time. Um, so it was it was a really really crazy time. So, so why? It, I'm sorry. So why reverse engineer? Uh, because uh, they gave us code, but it wasn't uh, written for Unix. Um, it was written for a TOPS 20 system. And uh, so I had an idea what the basis was, but basically I wrote this code over from scratch because it, what worked on the TOPS 20 wasn't going to work uh, for the system that we had uh, at hand. Okay, so what's a TOPS 20? Nobody else knows. Oh, boy, that's like a really old piece of hardware. I actually never worked on one. I, I think it was more like a Unix box. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I, we were running uh, SunOS. Uh, on some boxes, on Sun 3s and Sun 4s back in the day. Um, so, and actually, the, this system was actually initially housed on a Sun uh, 40, 470. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so it was, uh, this system was actually really small. Um, actually, there's this book, and I brought this book. Uh, <laughs> That gives you the insider's view of network solutions back in the day. It was written by this wonderful man called uh, Dr. Beister, uh, as well as Mike Daniels. And the, uh, Names, Numbers, and Network Solutions was really insider's view of what happened in network solutions back in the day. So it was a really controversial time um, at network solutions. It was controversial from the very beginning. So SRI thought they hit a lock on the contract dealing with uh, DOD NIC, the Network Information Center at that, at that time, and Network Solutions won it. Um, there was a big controversy about that. We got the contract, and then we were connected to the internet with a 56K line. 
Uh, needless, you could send like four emails in an hour. <laughs> yeah, about that much. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, so, so actually, if I wanted to do any real internet work, I had to come in late at night because that was the only time that the uh, the, the line was clear enough for me to actually um, download software um, through FTP servers and whatever else. Um, but anyways, I, I, I um, actually my first task, as I mentioned, was to rewrite who is. And so I did it, and I used it with a, a DBase-like uh, database called MKDB, Mark Koster's database. Um, and and uh, actually, it and it was actually used until a couple of years ago. Uh, so MKDB has uh, served for almost thirty years um, in, in various instantiations, either here at Aaron or at uh, VeriSign or Network Solutions. Um, I'd say it's been, or the DOD neck for that matter, uh, it's been used for a long time. Um, so, so the early days of who is, was really kind of amazing in that I could just write software in, uh, in terms of adding new functions. I was like, well, you know, finding names is pretty inefficient or finding email addresses was pretty inefficient on the initial who is server. So I actually wrote some stuff to say, Hey, here's how you do it. And I just made it happen, and our, our, our uh, government co- um, uh, contractor overseer of us said, hey, this is really cool. I'm glad that you did that. Now, today, you wouldn't be able to do that sort of thing. Uh, it would have to go through all kinds of processes to make that happen. Yeah, like two years' worth of processes nowadays. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I can, through policy processes, who knows what else that needs to be done. So. <laughs> So you wrote this software, it got out there, you started using it because you took over the NIC. Yeah. Did you take a lot of phone calls at the NIC? Uh, I took a couple of phone calls at the NIC. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had, a, a, it was actually pretty interesting. Definitely did the DevOps model when putting out the code. Um, I would actually write code and I would test it some and then I would put it on production and I would watch the logs to make sure that uh, uh, people uh, see what things were going on. And I saw the same question being asked over and over again, I thought maybe there'd be something wrong. So I would run the query myself to see if that was in fact true. Um, so and see if someone got stuck and was like, okay, what's going on here? So it was definitely a DevOps model that you have today as in Vogue, but that was definitely what I was doing back in the day to, uh, to make that. Agile. Yeah, it was definitely agile too. Let, letting your users do the testing for you. <laughs> We know you didn't sign up for beta tests, but hey, welcome to the club. <laughs> welcome to the club. So that was the early days of the internet, right? That was 91 through 93. Um, in 93, uh, there's this concept called the internet that came into existence. And Network Solutions uh, won that portion of the contract, which is non-military portions of the n- internet. And so we had ComNet, Org, EDU, Gov, um, all under uh, organizational control by Network Solutions, um, including the Whois server. Um, we also had what's now known as Aaron, the internet registry. And uh, one of the things that we were starting to see through that process was, man, we have lots of reassignments where uh, internet service providers, one of the things that they had to do is demonstrate utilization of their IP space with us. And so we would give them space, and then they would send us uh, reassignment information coming back for what they use their networks for. And they would do this via templates. And I thought, hey, this is really crazy. We really need to get this closer to the user. And by the way, uh, the internet's not in a single point of uh, 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 source anymore. At the very beginning, it was network. Ins- um, the network information center was this one-stop shop for finding things. 
But as time went on, it became, well, you had to go for European stuff. You had to go to Europe. Uh, you had to go to RIPE. Uh, you, if you wanted to go to uh, the DOD NIC, which is different than the internet, you had to go to their WHOIS server. And there's no way of knowing this until unless you actually had a priori knowledge of what was going on. So, and we had this reassignment uh, debacle going on as well. I didn't have enough people. At, at that point, I was running the internet. I was a principal investigator for Network Solutions uh, towards the National Science Foundation, which is the overseer of the uh, internet contract. And and I was like, hey, look, I know our, our government, our contract is capped, um, but I need to find a way technically how to... Um, reduce the burden on our staff to deal with all this reassignment stuff. So I came up with this concept called referral who is. And referral who is was a way for people to, hey, we may not know where exactly you need to go, but we'll get you one close step closer, much like DNS. We re referred you to a closer source who may have that directory service information. Okay, well, actually, that's a good question right there. I'm not sure how many people listening to this actually understand what who is is. Maybe it actually makes a little bit of sense to say, what is who is? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Good question. So who is it is basically at, at the very beginning is if you wanted to know, if you wanted to be on the internet, you had to be in who is. Um, before 1991, if you, want, if you had an email address, you had to be in who is. If you had a, a uh, military uh, access uh, through dial-up, you had to have a contact information who is. If you had a network resource, whether it be a domain name or an IP address network, um, you had to be in who is. Um, so th these concepts were in who is, much like they have today. So you would type WW, like, hey, I want to know who, who holds uh, um, the, the name CNN.com. So you do a who is space CNN.com, and it tells you who the organization is that has cnn.com or you want to find out who that network is that's currently trying to hack you so you want to do who is on that ip address to find out the organization that you need to send mail say hey stop ha hacking me uh, <laughs> so, if only hackers use who is that way right yeah right. Only hackers. The names in, in the I'm, that's how it works too you, you just send an email <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure so in the early days, actually, FBI was actually one of the advanced users of this. And in fact, I had an FBI agent call me and said, hey, can you tell me um, who queried this domain? Can you tell me the IP address of this, uh, uh, this uh, who queried this domain? And so I went through the logs and I found the IP address and it came from a user in Russia. And I said to the FBI agent, and about three months later, he, he came back and said, thank you. You helped me solve this case. And now that child is back with, rightfully so, with her mother. Wow. So, really so and that was like in the 93, 94 timeframe. So, so when you see on a cop show where they say this IP address was assigned in Miami, so therefore it, this person's visiting from Miami, that works, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> It might be from the United States. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. 
But but back in the day, it was actually uh, actually a little bit more useful than it is today. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, because because people haven't have, didn't transfer. There wasn't as much of a gray market or uh, even a white market around selling IPv4 addresses, and they didn't get transferred between the different registrars so quickly and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm assuming back then the IP address was much more indicative of where something was than it is today. Today it's almost meaningless. It seems like. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, so you're back in the NIC. You've got who is running. Everything's running. So tell us what happened after that. I mean, we're trying to get up to the, we're trying to get up to the 90s now. Okay, so we're, we're, we're in the 90s. We're in the mid-90s. And, and one of the things that we're trying to do is uh, we're trying to take this, this referral who is protocol that tries to find where domain names are or IP addresses or users that may be associated with those domain names or, or IP addresses. And, and what, what we're trying to do is since there's all these different network information centers now, uh, there's one uh, at the DOD NIC, there's one at the Internic, which is a different organization. There's one at RIPE, which actually deals with European organizations. There's all these country codes like .us or .uk, and they, own, they have their own WHOIS service as well. And unless you really know what you're looking for, you don't know where to go to get it. So we use this referral concept to try to push it through, and we start working through the ITF to make it happen. Uh, while this is going on, there's this another group, uh, a great group of people uh, who are coming up with a competing protocol called WHOIS++. And it was a similar sort of concept, a little bit different. Uh, Probably the same time as C++ came out. No. <laughs> yeah, actually close. It's very close. <laughs> it was very close. And, and so we had sort of a bake-off on, on who's going to do what. Uh, sadly, no one took no one really took off on either of these concepts. Who is plus plus or are who are who is referral who is referral uh, who is. Um, so there was a few clients that referral for referral who is that were put out, but not a lot. And um, and there was there was um, RFCs that were put out on it, so you had a standard associated with it. But it still it wasn't the 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 um, it, it didn't take off, and people actually still use their who is clients that they have today. So this has gone years and years. Now we're jumping up into like the 2000s. Okay. So I headed up a research group at VeriSign, and we called it VeriSign Labs. Uh, and Russ, I know you worked there at one point. Um, yes, for about two years. About two years. About yeah. two years, yeah. Yeah. And it was very entertaining, actually. Was it? The side was really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a great company. I loved working for VeriSign. So anyways, I worked for VeriSign, and one of the things that um, uh, we were looking at is I wanted to s tackle this who is issue once again. And so we started another group in the ITF called IRIS, uh, Information Services Lookup. Um, yep, I remember this, yes. And, and again, came up with a bunch of ITF documents and so on. And one of the things that they wanted, uh, we wanted to do was uh, we didn't want to use a, a computing protocol called LDAP, um, which is well-known within the Exchange community, Microsoft's Exchange community, but very few other places, maybe within uh, uh, various parts of the ITU, for example. 
So, so why didn't you want to use LDAP? Just curious. It is a very well-known protocol. Like it's around X500, right? Something around X500. That's right. That's right. Um, actually, there was a bake-off between uh, the IRIS work that was uh, underway and, and X500 work. And it was found to be not as um, robust, not robust enough. It wasn't flexible enough. Right. Um, yeah, I, re- I remember X500 had, I mean, when I worked on NetWare, it was X500, and so was Windows. Oh, boy, now I'm getting, like, really old. And um, Windows NT had an X500 directory as well. In fact, they were going to implement um, X500 in uh, Outlook in exchange for a long time. Yeah. And I remember it was just a bear to work with, with all the containers and the writes and the cross-writes. And it was very, I mean, it was had a lot of features, but... It was almost too many features. It was almost too difficult to work with for people to understand how to work with it. Yeah, yeah. It was very complex for developers too. It, it, it took, I, I actually did some work on X500 myself and it was just a very, very complex system to put together. Interesting, yeah. So LDAP is based or is grounded in or, or transfers X.500 directory information, right? That's correct. Okay. So, so anyways, so we went with this different protocol. Sadly, one of the things that we discussed early on was actually, hey, maybe we should use the web to do this. And at that point, it was like, hey, this is not cool to put everything on top of the web. We ought not to use the same transport, uh, HTTP, as (laughs) we need to come up with our own transport. Uh, now, now I'm just waiting for somebody to come out with OSPFIS to ISMPGP over HTTP. No, 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 don't go like that. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> so, so we had IRIS over BEEP. We had IRIS over TCP. We had IRIS over uh, UDP. All of these different things uh, of which very few of it actually got implemented. So again, not, not a huge success. Not a lot of people implemented it. We decided to go on who is, as it is known today, um, is still the predominant feature. So So, so let's find out. Do you have any idea why it wasn't adopted? I'm always curious about this, right? It was. What what was the reasoning? It was way too complex. It was way too complex. Okay. It was just too complex. And and frankly, it didn't use the web. It it didn't reuse the web. So, so now, now we're, now we're going from, okay. So network solutions is back in the nineties. Uh, Verisign was in the 2000s. Now we're going up to uh, Aaron, where I currently work, in uh, like the year 2012. Uh, and and there's this guy named Andy Newton uh, who works for me, who came over, incidentally worked with me at Verisign too, in Verisign Labs, who worked on Iris. And we came together and said, hey, look, we need to retry this one more time. And so we came up with basically, hey, let's put all this stuff within HTTP and HTTPS. Let's have this transport that everybody uses, um, and let's make this all happen over the web. So that's where our DAP has actually come out. Um, and and because um, we, we see other issues with who is right now as well. Um, one is internationalization. Who is doesn't understand internationalization? Okay, well. so explain, so explain that why why that would be a problem with who is. So so there's uh, since the uh, the internet's international now, it's more than just using U.S. ASCII characters that the okay. U.S. like. Um, even the French can't use uh, who is in its entirety, right? Uh, because their characters can't be um, um, actually fully 
used within an ASCII protocol. So you, you have to go to a, a, a different form to actually um, get your character sets d- displayed. So um, who is what you're saying is not and was never converted to something like Unicode. It's still based in ASCII. That's correct. Okay. So, so when you have when you use the web, you have all these built-in protocols that have already been taken care of. Unicode okay. is actually with you can run anything you want over HTTP. So, so Unicode is one of those things that you can do. And one of the other things as as we are going through this is saying, well, we should reuse what everybody else uses today. Let's reuse XML. Let's reuse JSON. Let's use all all these formats that all these web developers are using. Let's do the same thing with who is. And by the way, let's build some referral parts in it, much like we did with our who is. Let's try this again, but use the web. And so that's what we've been uh, working on, and it's been fairly successful in making happen uh, within at least the IP address community. Hey, give me an IP address. Tell me who uh, who has that space. Uh, who the contacts are, so I can contact them in the in the event that um, so they're they're trying to hack my my website or my home computer or my network or whatever else. So uh, so explain to, like the RDAP protocol is you're saying basically it's XML based, so it's markup or it's JSON like, yep. right? So yep. it's a markup, it's a model, it's like Yang. There's a model, and there are. Um, things that can go in those models. So you can actually model different things, like it's changeable over time as well. And That's correct. Okay. And it runs over HTTP and HTTPS, which is really important from a privacy perspective, right? Because that's a big thing right now. Yep, yep, yep. And the other thing that allows to happen is access control. Okay. So, so you can do authorization, authentication and authorization, which is built in HTTP and HTTPS in terms of, hey, you have all these frameworks that are already there. So let's go ahead and uh, authenticate that person and authorize that person to see levels of, of who is information. So maybe you would want to have a particular uh, organization see everything that's associated with that domain name. Or maybe you only want to um, only authorized people like law enforcement agencies or intellectual property people have them have access to it where joe schmo who is trying to spam you trying to find your email address to send you spam can't find you uh that information because they they haven't been authenticated uh they haven't been authorized to to see this okay that's really cool so now Tell me a little bit about the IFTF process. How did that go? I mean, was it pretty simple to get the working group started? Was there pushback? I mean, is there an, a separate working group? Where is this work going on within the ITF? Oh, yeah. So it's within the applications uh, area okay. of the ITF. Um, actually, it was very tough to get started because everybody says, hey, look, you've tried three times before and, <laughs> had, and had failures. Why should we trust you again to do the fourth? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, 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 um, so after, after senior minds uh, prevailed and things cooled down, I started working through the process, the ITF process, uh, these documents that came out dealing with RDAP, um, actually went through the process. There was a, it was contentious at times, uh, but they became uh, standards track uh, RFCs. Oh, cool. So they're already RFC'd and standards track. So that's good. Excellent. So if you wanted to get RDAP today on your Mac or Windows machine, I mean, are there clients out there? Or is this like just web-based? You just go to an RDAP server. Like if I go to whois.com or Aaron.com, is it using RDAP or is it using whois? 
So if you go to Aaron.net, you're actually oh, Aaron.net. Sorry. Oh yeah, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Not Aaron.com. <laughs> actually, you go to Aaron.com. It comes to us as well. Um, uh, so so um, yeah, there there's a there's a client uh, available. As, as, um, there's a CLI client, a command line interface client. Do a Google search for um, RDAP CLI. Uh, you will find it. Um, and our website is actually going to be driven by RDAP. So if you actually query for something off our website, go into a who is search box, for example, it will actually translate to RDAP commands on the backside and come okay. back. Instead of standard who is. Yep. So has anybody else implemented that way right now into the other NICs? Um, actually, uh, yeah. So uh, there's five regional registries that uh, deal with IP addresses. All five of the regional registries actually have RDAP implementations running. Oh, okay, cool. Now, the RDAP implementation that's out there, is it in GitHub or something? Can somebody actually like play with it, look at it, and see how it works? Or is this like mysterious? Like Mark wrote it and nobody else gets it. Oh, actually, I didn't write any of this code. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I believe... Actually, you, you asked a good question. Um, so I know that the cl- uh, command line interfaces are available. Um, there's a call from the community to make a sort of a web friendly web-based uh, interface available. Um, the server sides are a little bit more different because they're typically customized. Um, so the community has actually asked um, us or someone to actually develop some code to deal with the server. So, so back in the day, I actually wrote a... Um, RDAP client and server uh, so that people can actually download it, run the, the server, and then have a client to test against it. Right now, there's only essentially clients out there. There may be a couple servers, but I, I don't know of them uh, specifically. Okay. Right. But are the clients open source or are they? Yes, the clients are open source. Okay. So you can just go to Git repository and grab them. And... Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. Someplace. I don't know whether it's Git or which GitHub, GitLab, whatever it is, but I'm sure if you look, you can find it. Yep. Yep, you can certainly find it. Cool. All right, excellent. So any other like political or technical, I mean, like what's been the most technically challenging part of getting RDAP up and running? Uh, so actually, it's been fairly easy because you could just reuse all these tools that are available on the web today. So it's not hard. You need a RESTful interface. Hey, go find it. You know, it's there. You can rewrite BGP. Yeah, uh, yeah you can actually... <laughs> Sure, we can rewrite BGP using a RESTful interface. <laughs> Donald's going to get right on that. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to take a hard pass. Actually, we're going to use DNS. We're going to write that in a RESTful interface as well. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, no, all these tools are available. So you can actually you can download this stuff and you can just just make it work. So it's much easier. What's been harder is actually dealing with communities that have a hard time understanding what who is is. Probably and, most of our our listeners. Yeah, which is true. So so <laughs> <laughs> so so who is who is it has has multiple parts of it. One is the technology part, which we've been talking about. The other part is sort of the social aspects with it. And then and the last part is the data in which they, they serve. So, so you have this data. Okay, what data are you going to, what kind of data are you going to serve? Because who is itself is unstructured. You put anything you want it, you ask a query, you get back a result. Everything is unstructured query that comes in, unstructured result coming back. By unstructured, I mean, there's no way, sense of actually understanding other than you get 
bits and pieces of data that you've asked for. Well, it's marked, format. right? It's tagged in JSON or, or an XML but type format. In, right? in RDAP it is, but not in WHOIS. Oh, right, in WHOIS, right, correct. It's just straight text. Yeah, so so users say, say hey, look, there's all this mumble-jumble stuff here, so why do I need to be homogenous? Why do I need to have some sort of structure associated with this? So, so people say, well, okay, well, every every domain like CNN.com needs to have a, have an organization associated with it. Okay, and that organization needs to have a couple of points of contact. So, if you have some sort of issue, and maybe some of those points of contacts, depending on the, the locale that in which they come, maybe they have a first name, last name. Maybe the names are reversed. Maybe they only have a first name. Maybe they have a, a U.S. type of postal uh, uh, code associated with it. Maybe they don't. How do you make any sort of uniform, uniformity uh, associated with it? Um, and you, if you're going to have structure, you need to have that sort of uh, uniformity associated with it. So, so that's part of it. That sort of the the one part of the tug of war dealing with the jumble of data. So, so I would also think you want it to be machine readable. Does that not carry any weight as far as argument goes with the people in this community? Uh, like so like um, where you can read it by a machine, analyze it by a machine and, and use the information in some way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. It, it definitely does. I mean, the tech community should grab onto this and say, hey, this is so much better than who is in the parsing I have to do now today. Yeah. This is just much better. You can DevOps it. You could DevOps it. Yeah. <laughs> And it even doesn't take very much. <laughs> so, so today, if say um, um, I was in who is, and I decide, hey, I want to instead of having this sort of free flow, I want to have it to be attribute colon value based sort of a thing, a framework which is a mid nineties concept. Yeah, um, I can put that in there. It's just as legitimate as it was before, just as human readable as it was before, but it breaks all the parsers out there. Oh, that's interesting. So everybody's written parsers around the way the who is. The people have structured their who is data in the text field, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Yes. So, so it breaks people whenever you make changes. And, and we've seen this whenever we made changes with the who is service, the traditional who is service that we have today, that if we make some sort of subtle change, that breaks someone downstream. Which is which is interesting, which does not happen with RDAP because it's structured data. So maybe one way to get people to adopt RDAP is just to uh, randomly change who is formatting like every month and get uh, frustrated and then they'll go to RDAP. But this I seems like a good way to be yelled at. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of being yelled at. I agree. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, it might. Yeah, like randomly blocking IPv4 addresses might make IPv6 actually get deployed sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, IPv6 is happening. It's happening. I know. I know. It's happening. So, so anyways, so we talked about two things. So, one part is the technical part, uh, which makes it it's really easy right now, so people can grab whatever Rust tools, whatever XML tools, whatever HTTP transports that they want to make things happen. They can use whatever databases they want to have happen. Back in the day when I was doing Whois, as I said, I used MKDB. The only reason why I used MKDB is because there was no freeware versions of any databases out there at all. There was no, there, there was no MariaDB. There was no Postgres. There was 
there was there was nothing. There was nothing available. So I had to write my own um, as a high performance database. Now I, I I wish I had those tools back uh, that we have today back then, uh, but we don't. So the the last thing is a and this is the toughest nut to crack at all. Um, it's a social construct. And by social, I mean by all those people that look at who is and say, hey, this is a service that people rely on, like within the ICANN construct. The ICANN community looks at this. It's not full of technologists. It's full of policy people. It's full of, of uh, intellectual rights um, people. It's full of people trying, business people. Um, and they looking at this and saying, hey, look, who is itself doesn't make me any money. So especially the registrars are in the registries. It doesn't make me any money. This is a, a lost service that I'm obligated and contractually obligated to maintain for ICANN. So I'm going to do the very minimum to make that happen. And if you put, in, put RDAP on them, then they have extra work to do. Ah. So, so that's, that's one of the issues. The other is that the intellectual property people and the uh, law enforcement agencies are on opposite sides of the spectrum from the privacy people. So you have the law enforcement agencies saying, hey, I want unfettered access like I do today. The intellectual property people saying, I want unfettered access like I do today. And then you have uh, uh, the privacy people saying, I don't want anyone to have access. Now, that there's, tech, there's as we mentioned before, there's access control that could be built, could be used as built into HTTP and HTTPS that we can actually use to take care of this. But those two issues dealing with privacy versus need to know versus general public access seem to have get kind of clouded uh, within the ICANN community and making that happen. And if they do, then what sort of process they use, what kind of policies they use, how do they enshrine this in contracts is actually a real challenge. Interesting. So this must be really challenging in light of GDPR as well. I'm sure GDPR has made a major difference in the way you're thinking about RDAP and who is data. I, I would think that those people who are affected by this are probably saying, God, this could be salvation for us. We need exactly. to look at this. Yeah, absolutely. Because they can actually put in access control. That, uh, I see. So GDPR would give them the reasoning to say, by law, I have to put this access control in. Yeah. Yeah. And by law, they may have to make that available to law enforcement. They may not have to make that for, uh, available to governments. So, so it takes care of both those issues. Interesting. Interesting. Because I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time on the show talking about GDPR. It's actually, we want to do a show on it at some point, but um, we haven't spent a lot of time on it. It's a pretty interesting topic and place for people to think about in terms of privacy and what's going on there. So, yeah, yeah so that's, uh, that is pretty interesting. So is our, so RDAP itself, or <clears throat> yeah, RDAP itself is not being modified to manage because it already has everything needed for GDPR. It's already in there. It's all, it's all in there. All it needs is the policies to say in the contracts based on those policies to be put in place uh, that, that the registrars and registries need to be a part of. Okay, cool, cool. So, so any questions, Donald? Sure. Um, what would you do differently now that you've uh, been 30 years into this? Would you go back and change? 
<laughs> so I think the big mistake, um, especially in the year 2000 timeframe, was just not making it web-based uh, at that point. Instead of doing all these transport nonsense that we had, did at that point in time, um, we, it, we should have just made it simple. And instead, we made it complex. And that was actually a mistake. So it's actually interesting that there has always been this argument that you shouldn't rely on the network for network services. Like, who is should not rely on the network? I mean, it relies on the network anyway, but you shouldn't rely on the network. I mean, you hear this with BGP, you hear this with lots of different things like, oh, we shouldn't be relying on the network to get us network connectivity to make that network, that service work that makes the network work. And it seems to me sometimes that's a little bit overblown. Like that's a little bit pushed too hard. I mean, what do you think? Is that like, because I hear it all the time in my world. Uh, it's, it, it's, it, it, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, but like you mentioned before, you have to have the network to work to actually access these services yeah, to begin right. with. So, um, so one of the things that does help is if you're kind, of, you're kind of sort of broken, it helps you try to figure out, okay, how do I fix my kind of sort of brokenness uh, <laughs> that you have? Yeah. All right. Cool. So, I guess that pretty much wraps it up for the history. Do you have any other future stuff going on with RDAP that we should know about, or um, anything else that's interesting in this space? Um, I, actually, the, 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 I think the biggest thing that's uh, sort of a, at, at the forefront on this now is is looking at um, is for the policymakers and um, uh, the law enforcement agencies and so on to look at this at, in a different light um, in terms of hey. This is a service that can help me instead of hinder me. Um, and I need to uh, look at this and s- start promoting it in, in a way that hasn't been done yet uh, today. And for end users to say the same thing, right? We have a RDAP and who has, has a major tragedy, the commons problem going on that it doesn't hurt me if I don't up my, update my data, but it hurts everybody else. And I never think about like as an end user, oh, I need to go update my WHOIS data or whatever it is, yeah. because it doesn't really hurt me if it's not updated until I go to get somebody else's WHOIS data. And then theirs isn't right because they're saying the same thing. So it feels like to me a lot of times that many of these systems have a cultural issue in just getting people to realize the importance of the system to the internet as, a, as an ecosystem and to do the right thing in their, in their little patch of the world. So that it works for everybody correctly. That's true. That's true. And it helps those that need to find badness, help them find it more easily than guessing like they do today. Right. Exactly. So it's not, it's not the simple world like it was on on the story I told you about the FBI agent who used the IP address that that I gave him to find uh, the wayward father and send back the the daughter to his, uh, her mom. Um, So those happy stories are harder to deal with today than they were back then. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Well, that's cool. So I guess we'll wrap up. Mark, do you blog at Aaron.net or any other place? Um, I do not. You do not. Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, anything else? Uh, um, I am. I am cost at, uh, for Twitter. Okay. Um, And um, that's about it. I'm, I'm, not too much on the social scene. No, though. that's cool. That's fine. And Donald, where can people find you? Me you can you. find me on Twitter at me, not you, Sharp. Me, not you, Sharp. Yeah. I have it memorized now. We and should. You've heard it like a million times. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. 
And uh, you can always find me at rule11.tech and you can find me on the Network Collective where we have lots more history of networking stuff going on. It's really cool. And um, I think these are the best shows ever, personally. I, I love the history of networking. These things are great. Um, so thanks and come visit us there. And thanks for listening. And thanks for coming on, Mark. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs>